What is up, you beautiful people? Welcome back to the Build on Bitcoin podcast, where we cover everything going on in the Stacks ecosystem. I'm going to keep this intro briefer than usual because I'm currently battling COVID. But before I got it, I had an excellent conversation with the two co-founders of Byzantian, Josh and Daniel, or you might know them as Obsidian and Plutus. And yeah, we talk about a bunch. We talk about the evolution of exchanges and how things like Coinbase and OKCoin are getting into the NFT space. What does that mean? We talk about their background as developers, what they did before crypto, how they got into crypto, and uh, obviously a little bit about Byzantium. Although, to be honest, we cover really more about NFTs in general and you know where these things can go. How big is the NFT market uh, as a whole? Is it just artwork or is it a whole design space? Uh, yeah, we cover a lot. Cover a lot. So, without further ado, let's jump into this excellent, excellent conversation with the two co-founders of the NFT marketplace, Byzantium. Welcome to Built on Bitcoin. Daniel, Josh, how you guys doing today, my friends? Doing pretty good. Doing well. I think I'm doing better than you guys. It's four o'clock here. It's like 7 a.m. where y'all are at. So I got the good end of this one. Yeah, it's it's always crazy to see how global crypto is. What is it like where you're at? Maybe tell people where you're at, but what's it like over there? Yeah, so I'm in Montenegro. Um, I'm one of those weirdos who travels, uh, jumps places every three months. So we're in Montenegro for three months, be here for another month. It's beautiful and sunny. Feels like it's been uh, perfect weather here for like all year. And we're right on the Bay of Couture. So yeah, it's pretty nice. After you talked about it yesterday, I uh, looked up the, the climate in Montenegro. It's like the same temperature year round, which is like yeah, it's the perfect Oh, that's dope. Basically, it oscillates between 70 and 85, and it doesn't go anywhere yeah. else. That's incredible. That's amazing. Okay, uh, Daniel, where, where are you hiding at? Are you just chilling somewhere boring, or are you somewhere cool, too? Some, somewhere pretty boring in the U.S. In Right on. Okay, uh, man, we got a lot to talk about. I And first of all, I want to say, and this is mo- mostly for myself, I'm sure you guys really don't care. But I was in the float tank a week ago and I was sitting there and I was like, you know what? I was thinking about stacks in the podcast and I was like, why, why have I not had the Byzantine guys on yet? Like they're, they've been building as long as I've been building the podcast. And I realized I had this weird little epiphany that because Jamil was like my first stacks NFT uh, guest, I had like an affinity for Jamil. And so I was like this weird subconscious thing of not bringing you guys on. And uh, so just, I'm just putting that out there that like, Part of the reason I took so long is because I'm biased to Jamil, but uh, <laughs> that's putting fair. It out there, I, I appreciate you guys coming on the show now. Jamil's so, hard so not fair. to like, so he's a, he's a, 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 like the most likable dude probably in stacks. One hundred percent. Though you guys are equally as likable. <laughs> he's a great um, dude. Plus we, plus, we were these mysterious Plutus and Obsidian for a long time. So uh, that's true. Yeah. So that, that made it a little harder to get to know us. Good point. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about what you guys are building, but 
maybe let's work backwards. And I'd love to hear just a brief background of your guys' background. Like before you got into crypto, uh, what were you guys what were you guys doing? And then maybe what was that first little touch point to where you're like, especially for developers, like that web two to web three jump seems daunting for some people. So what'd you do before? But then how'd you decide to make that jump? Well, funny enough, I mean, Daniel and I have actually known each other since we were like 14, 13. I don't know, okay. super young. We played baseball together growing up uh, at different schools, went to the same college. He stuck with engineering. I dropped out of engineering and went to finance. And uh, But anyways, long story short, so, um, you know, I've been software developer basically since high school. So built a bunch of different tech companies, everything from um, live stream video streaming for music. So we'd like stream concerts all over the world. It's one of my first companies. And then we did um, a donor management system and payment platform for large like NGOs and nonprofits. So things like the Red Cross or like United Way. Um, and then I traveled around the world for a while. Previously, right before we started doing Byzantium, I was the head of growth at a company called Get Doctor. So we did patient and tech check-in systems. So just been a developer for a long time. Have co-founded quite a few companies and um, I've been keeping my eye on kind of Bitcoin ecosystem since like 2012, but pretty strong finance background. Okay. Very cool. Uh, what about you, Daniel? Daniel no, just sorry, like teleported into a new room there. Look at that. It is not sunny in, in 75 where I am. It's, uh, it's storming and, and internet is cutting out for some reason. Um, so, yeah, actually, funny enough, Josh and I kind of um, switched backgrounds. Uh, so I studied engineering and then went into finance. Um, studied engineering. The finance role that I did was more in quantitative finance. And so I did that for, for several years and then went to the dark, dark side from TradFi to, to uh, crypto. Okay. And then when you guys are kind of make, making that leap, decide what to do next, how do you, what was the first big, how do I word this? Like why stacks? Cause you know, for me, like I was getting into crypto. I'm like, you know what I had, I tell everybody, like I had like a third of a life crisis. So I'm like, I've been working at a grocery store for 15 years. This is not a career. Like I'm gonna have a family soon. Let me, let me get my stuff together. And maybe developer sounds pretty good. People talk about it like it's a it's a good career. I could you know work from my laptop if I'm good enough. Remote work is coming online, and so I was like, I'm I'm not gonna go web two. Let, let's not go fight with all the people at Facebook and whatnot. Let me go straight to web three and kind of like go where the puck is going. But then I did that same thing again of like I can go to Solidity where there's lots of developers, or I can go to a new blue ocean and like become you know a top twenty percent developer by being half good. That's that's how I, that's how I'm thinking. And so Stacks was how I popped in my radar because I kept seeing those like machine code, Stacks code that TO was posting. What was your guys' inlet to Stacks that made you that made you want to come in here and go hard? So, I mean, we first came across Stacks 2017, Daniel? Probably. So, I mean, it probably came into a couple of avenues. Um, if you're in tech, of course, you follow YC. So Blockstack went through Y Combinator. So that's when they first popped up on my radar. And then we're big fans of Kevin Rose. So Kevin used to have a podcast called Zero to Something. It was like his very first blockchain podcast. And he interviewed Manib. And I think he may have interviewed Ryan Shia as well. 
Um, and so that's when Stacks popped up on our radar. And Stacks is completely different back then. So like there wasn't a chain, there wasn't a token, there was none of kind of the token economics. And coming from like a Web2 developer background, my problem with Web3 and kind of being more entrepreneurial was to get into crypto, you basically had to be like a protocol designer and like deep, you know, I mean, PhD. You know, we really had to be a PhD to build, build on top of blockchains at the time. So um, for me, I kept opening that book up and it just felt a little too early. When Blockstack came around, they, I think, had a really interesting idea where it's, okay, we're actually, we're trying to build a decentralized web. I thought they had a very good approach where they started with the DNS layers, so like the domain name systems. And then they went to decentralized storage with Gaia and then universal authentication. And then they added the layer of the chain. So I've been following Blockstack kind of through that whole process. And then, um, and so, you know, we were in the token offering and we've kind of been in the community for a long time, silent observers um, and kind of cheering it on. And then of course, Mainnet launched and Daniel was actually the one who kind of saw NFTs way before me. So I, I mean, to be hundred percent frank, like, this time last year, I was definitely, well, this time last year, I guess I was on board, but like January, 2021, 2020, um, I, it was definitely not on my radar at all. Um, and then Daniel was hilarious as Daniel is probably the most conservative guy on the planet. And like <laughs> also the smartest person in the world I know. And we go mountain bike, we go mountain biking, we go to a, a beer bar and he shows me his pudgy penguin that he just purchased for like $9,000. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> like what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that was very out of character for me to do, but for whatever reason, kind of um, while Josh had to like kind of hold my hand and, and bring me along the, the crypto uh, journey early on, like in with fungible tokens, um, and I didn't really see them that clearly. Um, then for whatever reason, NFTs just made sense to me. Like, uh, I collected baseball cards growing up. Um, I don't know if, if, uh, I'm, I'm right, right of the curve or left of the curve, but it felt like a very left curve approach to me of just like, people like to collect things and now we have a way to collect things digitally. And so kind of went down the, the rabbit hole on that. Um, and had a lot of fun with it. It was something what di felt different about NFTs to me than uh, crypto in general was just that it was fun. I mean, like, yeah, people want to make money on it, but you had fun doing it. Um, and something about it felt like it could kind of pull in the mainstream. And so that, that's what excited me about it. Um, and so we just kind of started chatting about like the different use cases that NFTs could have short term and long term and like why people might be buying them now and, and just got super, super intrigued with it last summer. Hey, cool. I think we kind of looked at it from a, um, I mean, built a couple of things, right? Like I'd always wanted the opportunity to really start building inside this space. So Daniel was very lucky to pick up some of the nicer BTC names. So he called me this summer and we basically just laid out like a learning pyramid. Like, okay, if we're going to get into this space, what do we need to learn? It's like, Really, our first goal was to build a marketplace for BNS um, names, so the .BTC domain names. That was like our very first, we wanna do a reverse Dutch auction marketplace for uh, BNS names. And it's like, okay, if we're gonna do that, like what is the learning path that we have to go through? And the first one was like, okay, well, how do you even create an NFT? Back then, I mean, like you, we literally had to talk to Freaker. I mean, there was like, there was nobody else to talk. It was like, 
Frieger and Dan from Boom NFTs, like they're they're the guys who kind of for whatever reason answered our questions and like helped us along. So we did like the Mandelbrot's very early on. And so in our idea is like, let's launch an NFT, let's learn how these work. Then like a natural byproducts, people want to trade them. So let's build a marketplace. And then let's like continue up this learning path or this learning tree so we can build into the space. Things moved a lot faster than we thought, right? There was, of course, if you go back to September last year, there's a huge momentum and we kind of hit that wave. And I think people pulled us along. Um, and, you know, we had a natural tendency. We know how to build product, but um, really it was just an experiment. It was a science experiment that got away from us and we just kept going with it. Yeah, and the ecosystem ha- you know, happened to be developing around it at the same time. Because when we decided that we wanted to launch a, you know, in a, a BNS marketplace, essentially there, there were no NFT collections yet on Stacks. Um, so that, that was the only market you could have. And then, you know, Stacks Punks came out. Then we released Mandelbrot's. And then the ecosystem started developing. And artists started coming out and we were able to help them launch, you know, launch their art and uh yeah just happen to be kind of like developing around us at the same time i'm always intrigued by people who were there pre-2020 especially from the ico days because i got here in may of last year so like when i first got here you could stack and cycle was kind of here but there wasn't much else for like three four months like you couldn't do anything and so you just kept stacking and stacking I'm always curious, like what, what are you just holding your tokens and just kind of like watching from afar passively in that meantime? Cause it wasn't like everyone just kind of like they're having town halls and they're in the shadows working their butts off, but it seemed like consumer facing. There wasn't a whole lot to do. Yeah. Pretty yeah, much. You couldn't, I mean, that, you couldn't do anything. Yeah. You couldn't even trade your tokens in the U S until okay. Coin launched and like launched stacks in like January of last year. So it's like, you just kind of watched the price on Binance and that was about it. You just had tokens in your wallet and I uh, kind of waited to see how the ecosystem developed. I mean, to be fair, I think we may have had, I mean, I have heard you or Daniel and I have been spending hours. I mean, there, there's like hundreds and hundreds of hours of phone calls since like 2012, probably when it first kind of came on our radar. We got into Bitcoin and we got into Ethereum in 2016, et cetera. I think for me, like the real light bulb moment just on this whole economy, you know, when I found Bitcoin, my first internship at a high school was building trading algorithms and trading databases for a financial firm. And um, just on my own time, that's what introduced me to programming. And then I started kind of building my own systems. And what was super frustrating at the time was, well, I'm having to like pay $5 for every trade. And the way I was doing it is like, I couldn't really, that, that $5 my margins were way lower than that. You know, I was losing money basically because I was spending $5 every time I made a trade. At the, that's when I came across Bitcoin. So it was like 2012 and like fees were basically non-existent. That's not true anymore at all. And I was like, okay, like this would allow me to sit on the floor of the exchange and not have to ask anybody permission to do this stuff. So that was like one light bulb moment for me. And then I was in Zimbabwe, Africa in 2016. And um, if you know anything about Zimbabwe, they're like, pretty famous for having like hyperinflation. So like at the time you could only pull like $40 out of an ATM and there'd be lines like around the bank um, for like 40. I mean, you'd wait in line for two hours just to get to an ATM and then you could only pull out so much cash. And so I was in a cafe and um, I started talking to the owner who's from South Africa and we just 
kicked off a conversation. And one of the questions he asked was like, Hey, in the U S like how much money do y'all carry on you at any given time? Like cash. It's like, well, from the U S like maybe 20 bucks, like use your card for everything. And he's like, well here, it's not uncommon for someone to like hold like 2000 or $5,000. And like all these, we were in a mining town. So like all these mining trucks that you see, like they'll carry like $50,000 on them because nobody trusts the banks. And so he started asking me like, Hey, have you ever heard about Bitcoin? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, we've started like using that um, because you can actually get, you can do money transfers and it's like a store of wealth. Now I think I was very lucky and I saw that super early, but it was like, okay, this kind of the values and kind of what everybody hoped would happen in this case, like I saw it happen. And that's what like, the big click for me is like, okay, you can see money across borders without asking permission. And that was like the killer feature. So to your thing is like, yeah, there was nothing to do, but just being, since I travel so much, it was like, I think we probably both knew innately just that one killer feature of like, you don't have to ask anybody permission to hold your money or send it to somebody and you can take it with you wherever it was like good enough utility for us. And then having been a developer for a while, I was like, okay, the developer ecosystem just has to catch up to where we had dev tools to like web two developers, not like um, basically us rocks, kind of the dumb people, the dumb developers can start building on top of us. And it just wasn't there yet. Yeah, I think, I mean, that Josh's experience kind of highlights something, I don't know, that, that's good to remember. Uh, if you sit in the US or Europe or Australia, it's like, our experiences are not the same as other people's. And so it's easy for us to have this bias of like, oh, well, crypto's volatile. Um, Bitcoin's volatile. Like, is it really a store of value? Um, but then having, you know, these experiences where you talk to people where they couldn't, like, they couldn't actually get to the money that they had and it was devalued before they could get to it. Um, that makes kind of the volatility of crypto in the short term, you know, uh, did not matter at all. So, uh, it's kind of interesting just like seeing it from a different perspective. It makes so much more sense. Totally. Okay. You guys have opened like five lines of thought that I would love to go down, but I'm going to pause myself and try and jump back into NFTs now. Um, and I'll just start with the, the million dollar question, which is like, and I think airdrop loves this question of what is an NFT? Like if you're talking to grandma, what is an NFT? Yeah. So I, I've given, I've probably, I've probably answered this question a few times. Uh, kind of my favorite analogy. I'll just jump in. So the easiest one is um, one, you have to make two distinctions, right? There's fungible tokens and there's non-fungible tokens. And really everybody just needs to think of these as protocols. And that's kind of a fancy word, but we use protocols every day. Like SMS is the protocol. This is you know standard format for sending a text message from one cell phone to another. Every time you log into a web browser, you have HTTP, right? It's just standard communication, just like, you know, red light, green light, like that is a protocol on, on the road and that we drive on the right-hand side, right? It's just protocols. They're just rules for how you need to format information. So at the end of the day, that's all it is. However, fungible tokens solved a very distinct problem on the internet, which is, well, they solved a lot of problems, but the easiest one to grasp is double spend. So it's bits and zeros. How do we create a token, right? That can't be spent twice. And that there's only one owner at any given time. That's what blockchains do. So is there a ledger technology to figure out where that token is, who owns it at any given time, and is a state of the entire ledger. So that was amazing. However, fungible tokens are fungible. And what that means is you don't care which one you get. Like, I don't care if I get 
a Bitcoin that was mined in the Genesis block versus one that was mined yesterday. Like a Bitcoin's a Bitcoin, just like your US dollar, you're not really counting serial numbers. Like if you give me $10, I'll take another $10 for it, no problem. However, um, non-fungible tokens are the exact opposite. You care. And so the best like kind of real world analogy, actually in fungible token, it would be like a glass of water, right? Where if I ask for a glass, you can give me any glass. Like I'm not going to get mad at you if you bring one other glass, right? It's fungible to me. Non-fungible tokens is when I order an Airbnb, I want that Airbnb, right? It's non-fungible. When I show up, I don't want to show up to another Airbnb that I didn't order and it's mine. Um, and so that's like non-fungible. So there's a lot of examples like this that we care about, like your mortgage. A mortgage is tied to your specific house. You're you're the one who's going to pay it and the bank is underwriting it. So it just means it's specific and it matters. So there's a couple of reasons that I think it took off in art. So one is art in general, you get rewarded in the art world for doing something new, right? So if you look at a Van Gogh, right? One, you can tell it's a Van Gogh or you can tell it was inspired by Van Gogh. So, you know, he went from a classical artist and then pioneered his new art style and he was rewarded because he could prove that he kind of invented that new art style. But when it comes to digital art, there was no way to prove that you did anything first, right? Because right-click, you know, right-click download, you can send it to anybody. It's really hard. Like if I create an art piece and I email it to you, it's super hard to trace that it originated from me. It's very hard for me to prove that I'm the one who created it. There is no chain of custody for me sending this art piece to you. And so when it comes to valuable items, chain of custody is very important, which blockchains are amazing at, right? They're ledgers. They track where assets move at any given time and you can see a history of an asset. So for valuable pieces like your house, like there's a reason you go to the courthouse and you sign over your deed and then you can go to your local courthouse and you can look up the history of everybody who's owned that piece of land, right? So there is this chain of custody, which allows us to track ownership and who has owned it in the past, which is important to like have any type of store of value. So it was kind of like these two perfect meshes where one, um, through like IPFS, which is how you do art, you take a token, it's a unique token and you tie it to a piece of metadata. In this case, it represents art or it represents a PFP or music or a title or whatever. We store that in decentralized storage called IPFS. You know, we tie those tokens together. And now every time I trade that token around, we have a store of, okay, it went from Josh to Jake to Daniel, back to Jake, back to Josh. And we can trace his histories and then we can prove that this is the token that I'm buying and where it originated from and who created it. Um, so that's what NFT is. At the end of the day, it's just a protocol. It's a protocol for one, validating that its originality and for tracking its ownership through chain of custody. Yeah, and like to further illustrate the uh, difference of, of like fungible and non-fungible. So you have that and then you have the idea of a non-fungible token. Um, Serena Williams, tennis coach or trainer had a, a good video that basically, you know, he, he holds up two tennis balls and they're, they're just regular tennis balls. So they're fungible. Like if you had one of those tennis balls, you wouldn't mind if you traded them the other, cause it doesn't matter. It has the same utility. And then he held up one that was signed by Serena Williams. Well, all of a sudden that's non-fungible because you're not going to trade. If you have a tennis ball signed by Serena Williams, you're not just going to trade it for a regular tennis ball. Um, so that, that's a really good illustration. And then the, the token piece is just kind of 
digital proof of ownership. So it can be a digital item that it points to, or it can be a physical item that it points to, or maybe some other manifestation that we're not aware of yet. Um, but really just a digital certificate. Okay. This is, this is good context. Um, I'd love to hear, I was talking to John Enos from New Swamp recently, and he gave a, an interesting example talking about fungible and non-fungible that I hadn't heard before. And he said, he said that the, like the default way that reality is like we experience non-fungibility, like almost everything that we, we interact with is non-fungible in some sense. And so our evolution has wired us to non-fungibility. It's like what we expect by, by default and web two made everything fungible in some sense. Like it, it, it tried to remove as many barriers of scarcity as it possibly could. And that broke a lot of things, obviously. And so his point of view is that crypto brings that back in, in so many different variables that we don't even fully like realize yet. Uh, and that hit me when you said it. I'm curious if you guys, what would you guys think of that idea? One of the powers of Web2, I think, at least for me, that was a big unlock. And this isn't, this is just computing in general. It's the idea of um, items of zero marginal cost of replication. So you can copy something like, you know, when this becomes a video, we can copy that a million times and it doesn't really cost us anything. And any, if you put it on YouTube, a million people can watch it. And there's like no cost difference between one person watching it and 10 billion people watching it really, right? They're it's very slight. Um, so that's leverage in a lot of ways, just like, you know, Naval would say there's three types of leverage, right? There's capital leverage, there's people leverage, more people doing things. And then there's the type of leverage that comes through coded media. And what's, I was just listening to Chris Dixon and, uh, Mark Andreessen talking. Um, but I think one of the interesting things is web one, web two were incredibly powerful in that we had all sorts of leverage. A lot of people capitalized on it but we didn't have a native way to value assets that were zero marginal cost. So one, the cost of replication went to zero, but also the value diminished at the same time. And that's not always true. And I think now inside Web3, we have a token that we can associate value, even though the asset is you know infinitely replicable. It's finite, anybody can watch it, but only one person owns it. And like ownership does have value to it. And we haven't really been able to track that in previous web versions. Yeah, and I think to the point that John is making, like I've kind of viewed that more as scarcity rather than like fungibility versus non-fungibility because we do uh, experience scarcity every day in our lives, even with like renewable resources, there's scarcity kind of in periods of time. Um, so we, that's like innate to us. And then as Josh was saying, Web 1 and Web 2 kind of, uh, broke that mold where there was no scarcity. And now we're introducing scarcity again. So you can value digital things differently. And then you can also, I think one of the most interesting things, and we may get to this is you can create new business models based on scarcity. Like, yeah, it probably doesn't, it doesn't make sense for a SaaS business to have scarcity on their subscriptions because they need as many subscriptions as possible. And it's, makes no sense to like limit those um but there are business models where you know it could make sense to add on some scarcity model or to have scarcity in, in the first place so um it introduces 
not only something that we needed natively to transact fully digitally, but also like new ways of thinking and doing business. I like that. Um, yeah, I'd love to jump into what you guys have been building then now for the past few few months, almost a year now, right? Um, and it started with the the BNS, and that's an interesting one because BNSs are are bringing back or they're starting this uh, like identity online, so you can have trust online. And I've seen some kind of pushback from different people of like how easily you make that tradable is a big issue. Because if I build branded Jake blockchain up BTC and then sell it for a million dollars, now they're assuming all of my built up rapport until my kind of like small user basis knows, okay, that's not the real Jake. You know, it's like Twitter blue check marks kind of matter, but we're seeing them being games now too, where you can, you can buy one off of some secondary site and make it a moon birds looking thing. And it, it checks the boxes of what trust looks like. I guess first, why BNS to start? That's an interesting one. But also, how do you feel about that going forward of like being able to trade trust in some sense? Yeah, so BNS was the, I guess, the impetus of the idea because um, we had some some good domain names. Uh, but then, as Josh was saying earlier, thought about what was needed to build a BNS marketplace and realized that BNS names were just NFTs. So we had to figure out like how NFTs worked on Stacks and then how to build one. So we decided that you know, make the, the Mandelbrot's collection and release it. And then we started getting, I guess, uh, sidetracked from the original BNS marketplace idea by people asking us to help them launch. You know, there were all these artists that had kind of been in the Stacks ecosystem that wanted to launch something, but didn't know how to, you know, how to launch an NFT, didn't know how to uh, code in Clarity and, and all of that. And so we started helping people that way. Um then naturally kind of built up the marketplace. It wasn't until Josh, when was it that we released DNS? Like January, Way later, February. January. Yeah. So we started back in, I mean, we launched our, uh, our Mandelbrot's collection back in September. Uh, and yeah, didn't get around to releasing BNS marketplace until like January, February, <laughs> something like that. So yeah, that kind of just was the spark of the idea to build an NFT marketplace. The answer around, I think, brand, I think we, we can take this like two ways, right? We, we definitely give the history and how we got there. But I think it is an interesting thing about you building brand around an item, say BNS, or around an NFT, um, right? We see a lot of people doing that with Bored Apes. We saw, we saw a lot of people do that with Bitcoin Birds in the very beginning, um, to be honest, where they're starting to build brand around it. I mean, I think brand in general is valuable. Now, when it's tied to you specifically, right, it's very hard to sell for all the reasons you just said. But let's say you build a brand and it's like Nike. Well, someone's going to want to buy that because there's a lot of brand value tied to Nike. There's a lot of feelings around Nike. There's a lot of history to Nike. And so it becomes a sellable thing. And we'll be able to do that around digital assets now. And you can, one, defend the brand that you're building, which I think is very important because there's true ownership. And you can actually build some value around it. So I'm pretty pro it. I mean, there's definitely cons to everything, right? Like the Twitter blue check mark thing is, of course, super annoying when you're getting, uh, if you like own a moon bird and then you become a target because everybody else on the planet uh, with a blue check market, they'll just buy blue check marks and they'll start spamming the crap out of you. So I think there's a dark side to that, but there's a dark side to every technology, including Bitcoin. If you go very early days, right, it was all the Silk Road. So um, but we develop out of that. 
for the most part, I would say it's a net very positive where you can have a digital asset that you can build value into it. And then it allows you to trade it. And even if you look at the earliest times of the web, right, those earliest domain names, like if you got a good domain name, that was really kind of the first NFT on the web, right? Were domain names, it wasn't decentralized, but um, you had it. And you know, a lot of people retired off that because it was a good name. I think now it's a little bit different. It's not only the name, but you can build brand. And I'm not like a marketing, I mean, I'm a software developer. I'm not big on brand, but the more you kind of build, the more you realize that that's very, very important. And um, Dana and I were on the phone the other day, just talking about like LimeWire, like LimeWire still exists, right? And if you buy LimeWire, kind of forget all the technology, there's a lot of value in just holding that name. Anytime you ship something, right? You're going to get like press releases for that. Like it saves you probably millions and millions of dollars of marketing alone, just because the name is recognized. Anything you do, people are going to follow it. There's a lot of value to that. Um, so I think it's a net positive, to be honest. Yeah. Michael Saylor talks about this a lot because he oddly bought like a bunch of really good domain names back in the, in the nineties, I think. Um, and he started selling some of them off. Like he sold angel.com for 60 million or something like that. Um, and his thesis was, and is, and I think this applies to branded assets in web three, you know, if to Josh's point, like it can save you tons and tons in marketing. Um, you know, he, his thesis is like, it can save you a billion dollars in marketing if you have the right domain name for the right product or you can start a business around that domain name. Um, and so there, there is value to that, but I think, you know, if you're tying value to yourself personally, and it's not a scalable, you know, asset, like, you know, jakeblockchain.com or jakeblockchain.btc and you, you kind of like had a one man podcast and you were the main reason people were, you know, listening to it. And there wasn't like a media business built around it. It would, um, you know, be, Hard, harder to sell it, I think. Um, and it wouldn't make as much sense to sell it. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I was thinking about it from like the trust angle, but the the value capture and value exchange angle, like with a business where like Tim Ferriss has a huge brand, but it would be hard to ever sell that business because it is him versus if it's something more broad. Okay, um, thank you for that. We're talking about use cases then. I'd love to explore that further. So we talked about BNS, um, and we know about profile pictures. So like the, the art piece where you're, you're connecting something, this, this pretty little monkey and then the, the binding to the blockchain. But what do you, what do you guys see as like the future of MTs? How, how big can this go? Cause in my mind, I see it being everything. I see it being your gym membership. I see it being, you know, tokenizing all kinds of deeds or your title to your car. Um, from your perspective, what do you, what do you think NFTs are going to go in the next few years? How, how big can it be? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm with you, Jake. I think, <laughs> I think it could be everything. Um, I mean, between fungible tokens and, and NFTs, I think we could cover a lot, uh, a lot of the real world use cases that we're, uh, that we have right now. And, you know, I think we've started to see kind of a surge really kicked off by proof collective a surge in membership um assets um as nfts you know i think more and more of that will kind of pervade into the the real world where 
gym memberships, I think is a great example because you have limited capacity. Like a gym can only have so many members. Um, and, you know, there's a, like a social club here in, in the place that I live and they just kind of cut off membership when, uh, when it gets too full. So they have a certain number that they're willing to get to and then they cut it off. Well, if they, if those membership passes were NFTs rather than just passes, like I could go sell that to someone, uh, rather than it just sitting there. And, um, you know, maybe it's, you know, someone who values it more than I do. Um, so those are kind of like, the, I feel like that's kind of the low hanging fruit. Um, anything that has, um, limited capacity, um, whether it has wait lists or just limited physical capacity, there's, you know, interesting use cases for NFTs there. And then, well, I think um, there too, Daniel. So like one of the, anything that is valuable because you have access to it, it kind of unlocks new business models. So Daniel and I have talked a lot about this. Like if you think, and there's been some use cases, Kevin Rose is the one who kind of turned like first, I heard it from like there's wineries where they're super boutique wineries, very famous. The wait lists are like 50 years just to get on the list to get your allocation, right? So you're, there's a set number of people who can even have the right to buy and people die before people can get on that allocation list. Well, so they're NFTing them. So now instead of dying off, you own something that's valuable because you have the right of access to something and you can sell that off. So that's like a whole new business models and basically income streams for businesses that didn't exist, right? Um, so if you build a valuable brand where people want access to you and you don't have access, yes, you can sell the product, but then you can also make royalties on just people trading the access to that product. Um, to basically take anything like, you know, if you go into a Rolex store right now, there's like nothing on the shelves, right? Because it's just, nobody really knows, but you don't have access. And so you have to be buying there for a long time and you may get a call from a dealer and says, Hey, do you want to buy this watch? You know, you have a day to buy it or we're going to the next person on the list. If you have that allocation, you can sell off that allocation. Um, so those are very interesting kind of new use cases for existing businesses to have another cash flow stream that they didn't have before. Yeah. And even when, for example, um, say your business has to be on a wait list for something to be manufactured. Um, I'm trying to, you know, trying to think of a, or say your business is on like a wait list for, uh, a home builder um, or a contractor or subcontractor of some sort. Um, and there's individuals on that list and then businesses on that list. And the wait list is two years long. Well, if there's an individual on that list that ha has two months to go on that wait list, and there's a business that has six months to go on that wait list, that business probably can capture more value out of that spot than the, than the consumer. And so that business could pay that wait list for that waitlist spot. And maybe it's more than, you know, the consumer cares about to, um, you know, wait four more months for that spot or something. Um, so the business, the um, business could say, well, we'll pay you, you know, $20,000 for that spot and you can go to the back of the line. And the consumer may say, well, actually, that makes sense to me. Like, I'd rather have the $20,000 than get this done in two months. Um, it's kind of like a vague description, but anything that has constrained supply, it can be super useful for. That's cool. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> we're coming up on time, and I realize that we haven't really touched on what you guys are really building. But, <laughs> and I have some good questions still. So I want to put you guys put it in your ballpark. Do you want to talk about Byzantine specifically? Or the next question I'm curious about, or we can do a round two for sure, is the changing landscapes of empty marketplaces, period. Because we're seeing Coinbase and OKCoin get into that. Which one would you guys love to tackle with these last 10 minutes? I'll let you guys do you do you Let's care? go for the more intellectually intriguing conversation rather than us talking about ourselves under the talk We're playing the, the long game. People are gonna be intrigued by your answers and go search by Xantian and they're gonna find out anyways what you guys are building. Uh, but yeah, I, I you know there's this idea, I think Bology started it of like unbundling and bundling services. And so it seems like we're in that phase right now with crypto where there's a like wallets are doing more and more and exchanges doing more and more. And so you have like decentralized entities trying to be as much one-stop shops as they can. And then centralized entities trying to be like the perfect, easy onboarding experience for the, the crypto curious to do whatever they can. You can buy NFT, you can trade, you can do DeFi ideally. Like that's like it's going that way. Um, and I'm just curious of your guys' thoughts of like the evolution of, of these marketplaces. The way I kind of view it, I'm going to take a different take, but like big picture view, I feel like what we're doing, it's almost like a March Madness bracket because this is a brand new industry, right? The whole, I mean, OpenSea has been around the longest, NFC Gateway, et cetera, but everybody is experimenting on their canvas of what works and what doesn't work. And we're all learning from each other. Like, I mean, we're on, we talked to Jamil at least once every two weeks, right? We are looking at everything everybody else is doing. So everybody's experimenting in their canvas and some of them are working, right? And it's basically like they advance into the next bracket. So one, a lot of people are experimenting. We're figuring out what works, what doesn't work. Everybody's got their own view of the world and basically um, survival of the fitness. We'll see what works. Unfortunately, we're in a hyper-competitive environment. We're also in a downturn, right? So we're going into a bear market. So I think if I was going to project um, is we're going to see a lot of consolidation probably over the next six to eight months where the things that won't working just die off. And the people who do that it is working for, right, they're going to rush to either buy out um, kind of all the smaller players or to copy all the other players. And so basically in the bull market, right, you get rewarded for experimenting. And in the bear market, you're going to get rewarded for doing what works. Um, as people try to stay alive. And so I think that's what we'll see. I mean, of course, there's OpenSea famously moved into Seoul. It doesn't look like they've really won Seoul. Magic Eden really has a killer team. Of course, you have Coinbase, and they're taking kind of the complete opposite approach where it's um, 100% custodial. You see, like, um, even OKCoin, right? They have their kind of own NFC marketplace. People are throwing up their own chains like Binance, et cetera. Um, so I think you've got a couple of wars going on. You have the centralized kind of walled garden war of, can we bring NFTs in here with their existing user bases? You have the completely open world kind of open sea, even though they're semi-centralized, but, you know, Magic Eden, people like us and Gamma. Um, and then everybody's looking kind of for the next six, eight months, what works? Let's make sure that we get up to feature parity and kind of move as fast as possible. That was a long-winded answer. I don't know if you got any other thoughts, Daniel. <laughs> Some yeah. counter thoughts. I mean, I think on the the bundling piece right now, you know, it makes sense for Coinbase and OKCoin and 
other exchanges to to bundle an NFT marketplace in because they already have users and it's no, I mean, besides the investment into building it, it's no extra cost to acquire users. Um, I think it'll, they need to kind of play the long game there because I'm, this is, I have no, this is just like anecdotal, but um, users on those platforms by and large probably are making smaller transactions and smaller investments. Um, like I'm Coinbase and OKCoin. And so they're probably not the ones buying, you know, $200,000 board apes. Um, and so I think that's why you see still a lot of that happening on, you know, on OpenSea and not much traction on Coinbase. It's just because Coinbase users are a different profile. Um, and so, but it's not really going to cost Coinbase or OKCoin too much in the scheme of things to keep that going until more of the mainstream comes in. Because when the mainstream comes in, and there are NFTs that are, you know, $50 or $100 that are like semi-popular. Um, say it's, you know, like a 500,000 piece set or 100,000 piece set, and they cost less, then I could see Coinbase users and OKCoin users, you know, um, actually transacting on those NFT marketplaces more. So I think that's where bundling makes sense. But then, you know, over time, I think you'll also see unbundling here already seeing it in some ways with like the way different users use um eth-based nfts like people have started transacting through um through other tools like nft nerds they're transacting through gym uh gym was acquired by OpenSea, but they're they were kind of services that fit more of their needs as, as like pro traders um where OpenSea was more kind of general. So I think, um, you know, we may see a mixture of bundling and unbundling where there's kind of niches for different types of users. Um, but then where maybe people who have already had, have big user bases in some other way want to try to bundle in an NFT marketplace. Okay. Also, I, I love the idea of this, this idea bracket. That's, that's super interesting. Uh, it reminds me of a, there's a book called AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee, who used to be at Google. And he talks about the difference in China and the U.S. when it comes to innovation and how in the U.S. we have strong IP rights. And when someone like Facebook copies Snapchat, we like poo-poo them. Like, how dare you? And we, we put this like, you had the thought you should deserve this respect on this pedestal. And in China, it's the opposite, where it's like the idea is for everyone. And once it's out there, everyone copies it as fast as possible. And that becomes the new baseline. And it seems like, I don't know if it's because crypto doesn't have good regulation yet or the nature of open source. It seems like that IP bar is like everyone's just, once the level's been set, it everyone elevates up to that bar. And that becomes the new, the new standard. I think it's almost a design principle. I mean, like in Stacks, it's super common, right? Every smart contract is open source by default, right? And that's human readable, which is different than other chains where people have to, I mean, you can kind of compile it, but it's a lot harder to get to the original source code. Um, and so even when we came in to Stacks, like that was something we had to rewire our brains in is that anything that we release, it will get copied, right? Because it's open source at the very beginning. Any They're building blocks. Like when we... That was one of our key insights with the universal marketplace where it's like, okay, yeah, we have our marketplace, but we can read everybody else's code. Why don't we just tap into their smart contracts and show all the listings inside Byzantium? 
And it took a second to kind of get over that because you're right. Like in the US, we have very strong IP rights, but by definition, Web3 and kind of the promise of it, one is borderless. So it's not American values, right? So you kind of have to get over that. Like, you know, everybody's in like Australia and South Korea and like all over the world. So you kind of, you can't impose the American value system on top of it. You just have to look at what is it as a technology and then how do we build here as fast as possible? However, what I think is very interesting about to you, you have less IP rights, but in the other hand, what does happen is because the chain that learns the fastest attracts more developers and it attracts more innovation and productivity on top of it, it's actually good that we're sharing everything because the bar raises super high. I know a lot of people like on Twitter, not to pat ourselves on the back, it's just other people, like people make comments like, you know, between Byzantium and Gamma, right? The marketplaces are quite honestly just more advanced than what we see on other chains. Well, it's because like we've, from day one, we've seen everything that they've done. We've seen all their smart contracts that they've done. We've innovated on top of them and we just keep raising the bar on ourselves. Now, hopefully, right? The idea is that's good if the chain grows because we it's you know rising tide and we're both getting better and like the chain just becomes more valuable as a whole. It doesn't work if the chain doesn't grow. Um, then we're just competing over against finite resources, but I don't think we live in a finite resource world. So you can always expand the pie. Well said. Okay, last question. And now we can touch on maybe Byzantine a little bit. Uh, let's assume that stacks, you know, hit some some critical threshold. It's a lot more popular than it is now. Two, two three years in the future, what is what does Byzantium look like in that in that time period? Like execution is crushed, you guys are killing it, and there's users. What what does the Byzantium marketplace look like? Or is it still a marketplace? Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um kind of on on one hand, we haven't really touched on this. We we built an NFT marketplace, but we also build a lot of like underlying data infrastructure that we provide to projects and you know like our api runs the back end of the megapart marketplace and and we have underlying kind of data apis that feed other services for for projects in the ecosystem um so if you know stacks grows like grows like you're talking about we would not only want to continue focusing on kind of highly analytical traders like we're, we're we've been steering towards on our NFT marketplace um, and giving them kind of all the tools they need to do the research they need to on, on the marketplace and, and buy NFTs and really view them as kind of like um, tradable assets rather than just images. Um, in addition to that, we want to, we're passionate about like the building blocks in the space and helping other builders. And so, we want to leverage our kind of data infrastructure to help other builders in the space, even if they're not NFT projects, but if they, if they need data, like, you know, uh, the data that we have, um, you know, built out and, and have the infrastructure for, to be able to give them kind of a launching platform to, to go off of rather than having to do it all again themselves. Yeah, there's a couple of layers. I mean, if you just look at Byzantium in general, like our tech stack, when we spend 90% of our engineering effort is an index in the chain. So if you know anything about like blockchains, they're basically like balance sheets. They're a snapshot in time of where assets are at that given moment. 
it's really hard to trace like what is the history of any given asset whereas a bin what is kind of the um chain of custody for any given asset like if i look at nft what marketplace is it listed on so when i buy it what marketplace do i have to buy it from so essentially what you have is you have a node right it's throwing off transactions and then you have to index those transactions in those smart contracts so we index basically all the marketplace contracts we index all the nft smart contracts so we're tracking every time those functions are called and we're creating events so we have a pretty robust data layer which is why we've been able to develop so fast and we're kind of known for shipping features very very quickly is because we have a very robust data layer and then we're our own customers so you know the byzantium marketplace really is just we were our own first customer we were building one specific vertical on top of that data layer but it's open so like anybody can come in they can ask for access they can get access to all that data so they don't have to run their own indexers and you know basically spend five months of engineering doing it um, and they can build their own stuff on top, which we're already seeing. So, you know, like the very first one was Megapont Marketplace. So that was running on our back end. Um, NFT spy tools, like all of their data is being populated by our APIs and our indexers. And so anybody can come to us and get access to those indexers and kind of build whatever they want on top of it. Perfect. I love that. Yeah, Byzantium is for traders by traders. And you see that when you <laughs> post where it's like, I'm tired of this being a thing. I fixed it. Here you go. Uh, I love those Twitter updates. Okay. La I guess uh, no more questions, but any closing thoughts before you close down? This is, this has been fantastic. I think we're going to love it. Any, anything you guys want to close on? No, I mean, I just, I want to encourage you, Jake, and I think you've done an amazing job. I think one of the biggest things that we can do in the space, everybody knows this, but, you know, it's telling stories, telling stories of developers. And basically, it's just giving people a picture, especially with, we have tons of Web2 friends. Um, I'm calling all my, really everybody, like anybody's listening to this, kind of like the best thing that you can do for Stacks or crypto in general is call the smartest people you know and convince them to come in. And I think what's amazing about the Stacks community in general is it's like us, like everybody talks to each other. Everybody's doing knowledge share. Everybody wants to see other people succeed. Now there is like some friendly competition in the meantime, but really it's cooperative competition. Um, and so the best thing anybody can do that's viewing this podcast, and I think Jake, you've done a wonderful job, is bring the smartest people that you know in the space and get them building. Because um, there's a lot to do. Um, there's plenty of problems to be fixed. And the nice thing about um, Web3 is you can really build amazing businesses here and it's time. So it's no longer infrastructure protocol layer. It's time for kind of everybody else to move into the space. Well said. Daniel, yeah, you, got a, you got a mic drop moment? <laughs> <laughs> I would just add that we, uh, you know, we often get distracted with the the number of opportunities that are out there in, in the space. And um, it's just, yeah, if you're in Web 2 and you're a builder, you're going to love building more in Web 3. Um, so it's, it's super fun. We've, uh, the past eight months, or kind of however long it's been, have definitely been the most fun I've ever had working. And I think that's just part of building in such a new space. So, um, yeah, I think sometimes builders aren't the best at, at talking about it. So I'm glad you're doing that. Glad the airdrop guys are doing that. Um, and just a, a great resource for, for everyone to kind of learn and, and be motivated by. Perfect. Perfect way to end it. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Like builders are so good at building. And they do it in the background usually because they're on the computer typing up code. And 
I'm always fascinated when I get to talk to you guys because you guys are built because you guys are so effing interesting. There's so much to talk about, and no one ever sees it. You know, like it's you guys just kind of do it amongst yourselves. And so, I'm glad I could do my small part with this podcast. Um, but yeah, if you're a Web two developer, get dressed over here. Like, what are you scared of? It's it's time. Uh, but yeah, thank you, thank you guys for taking the time and coming on the show. I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Welcome to Built on Bitcoin. I know that things don't always go your way, but I'll be right here waiting. I've been waiting now. I've been trying to figure out a way to make it out. Make it out, cause I don't think about everything.